All right, boys. Who is your favorite comedic actor or comedy star? For me, that's actually, that's pretty easy, honestly. Yeah, there's a lot of guys I could pick. A lot of late, you know, I could say uh, Gene Wilder or Madeline Kahn, anybody from that group of people. I could say uh, Belushi or Aykroyd or, you know. Uh, but for me, it's, it's, it's Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy, I mean, his when he's on, he's unbelievable. You just have to look to last year when he came back with Dolomite is my name and then his really just amazing performance on SNL, which is like one of the best SNLs in in years. You know, 48 Hours, Trading Places Coming to America, you know, The Nutty Professor, Bowfinger. When he's on, he's just truly unbelievable. I mean, not even not even taking into account his stage stuff as a stand-up or his work on SNL, just like even just in the movies. I, I, I just, Eddie Murphy's just, just works for me. And uh, I hope he, we can continue the, the good Eddie Murphy stuff with coming to America Two coming uh, sooner than later. It would seem like. Yeah. I mean, I loved Mr. Church. So yeah, you know, everyone's favorite movie. Mr. I, was trying Church. To, I, was, I was trying to, I was trying to think of like, not a bad Eddie Murphy movie, but just an innocuous one. Um, okay, so m- for me, obviously, this is a besides Arthur Lake answer, because, of course, you know, R.I.P. to a great one. Um, no, so I was trying to think about this, and, like, I loved Jack Lemmon a lot as a kid. In fact, when I was doing plays in, like, high school, whatever, I was trying to imitate his delivery. But I was trying to think of, in terms of, like, favorite uh, comedy star or comedy performer, I was trying to think of somebody who, who is somebody that, when I see them in something, they always deliver. Even if the rest of the movie is terrible, they're still funny, you know? Somebody who I'm like, I if I, if they show up, I know I'm in at least safe hands for a bit, even if the film is, is awful. And there are two people that come to mind, which is uh, Lily Tomlin and Christopher Lloyd. I have, both of them have made not great movies, but I have never found them not funny in them. You know, so anytime they pop up, you know, if it's if it's Christopher, you know, if I'm watching, even if it's my favorite Martian, I'm like, all right, Christopher Lloyd is going to have some stuff to get me through this. Uh, He's still going to deliver. Like Christopher Lloyd always delivers. He knows what his his vibe is. I'm I'm certain even if I watch the Oogie Loves and the Big Balloon Adventure, uh, I'm going to chuckle at him because he takes his job seriously. Uh, I remember literally watching because uh, I was weirdly fascinated by uh, the Oogie Loves and the Big Balloon Adventure because Tom showed me a clip once. Do you remember this, Tom? Yeah. Yeah, of Carrie Elwes. And I was just like, what is this thing? And Christopher Lloyd in his interviews was dead serious. Like, I've never played a character who communicates only with an instrument. It was fascinating. And on the other hand, Lily Tomlin is just she is so solid and so incredible a performer that I if I hear she's in something and somebody tells me it's good, I don't even need to check it out for myself. Like I've, I have not watched any of Grace and Frankie, but like when people go like, it's so funny. Like I in no way doubt that there's no part of me. That's like, I don't know. Like, of course, of course with that cast, especially with Lily Tom, like she just knows how to deliver a line. You know, she's, she is a perfect performer. So for me, Lily Tom and Christopher Lloyd are just the pinnacle of, of always delivering. Climb on your bombs, study your pocket-sized Russian phrasebook, protect your fluids, and whatever you do, don't fight in here. This is the war room. 
We're talking 1964's Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, with special guest Connor Ratliff, here on Your Missing Out. Our guest today is the creator of the podcast Dead Eyes and the George Lucas Talk Show, formerly at the UCB, now on Planet Scum's Twitch channel. You've also seen him in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Search Party, and The Chris Gethard Show. Connor Ratliff joins us today to discuss Dr. Strangelove. Hello. Welcome back, Connor. Thank yes, you. you you were on the older version of our show, which we recorded back in 2018. Mm-hmm. And obviously there's been a big change in the last two years, which is you have a podcast now. That is the big change. That's the big change. Uh, Only thing that's happened in two years. Yeah. Well, I have a short podcast now because my other podcast is 12 Hour Day with J.D. and Connor. Now I do a podcast where all the episodes are very brief, anywhere from 30 to minutes to an hour, you know, just just little bite-sized episodes. But you've made up for it because you've now added extra hours of runtime on the formerly one-hour George Lucas talk show. So, it you know, it evens out. That's true. Every Every time I try to make one thing shorter, the other thing gets longer. That's a, that's an excellent point. Yeah, I think we realized when we started doing live streams of the George Lucas talk show, one of the things we quickly learned was that the only reason we ever uh, kept the stage show brief was because it was either late and the theater had to close or there was another show that had to go on after us. But left to our own devices, we clearly uh, will just keep doing the show for hours. <laughs> one thing that I find fun about Dead Eyes is, you know, to bring up the last time you were on, uh, when I knew we were having you on, you, you took a chance on us. You came out to uh, Kyle's old apartment and sat with us and talked Christmas songs. Yeah. And when I knew you were coming on, a person we work with, a friend of the show, uh, said to us, because he's a, he's a UCB guy, uh, Mark Levy. Mm-hmm. He said, oh, if you're having Connor on, ask him about Band of Brothers. So I said, well, what do you mean? Because I'm not just going to ask that blind. He goes, oh, Connor got fired off of Band of Brothers by Tom Hanks. And I immediately went, there's no way in hell I'm asking him that. What a terrible thing to ask about. There's no world where he's going to want to talk about that. And then, right, I would I would have <laughs> talked about it. Yeah. A year later, you're going very in depth on it in what is genuinely a great podcast. Well, uh, it's, it's funny because there was uh, there was an article about the George Lucas talk show uh, when we were doing our most recent fundraising episode because we do these monthly fundraisers. And in the article that was explaining what the George Lucas talk show is, in order to explain who I was, that it's, oh, there's this comedian, he pretends to be George Lucas, and they do a talk show, they said, Connor Ratliff, uh, who is best known for being fired by Tom Hanks from Band of Brothers, <laughs> they listed it as if it was a credit, like as if <laughs> other people is like, oh, best known for Saturday Night Live, or best known for, you might know them from The Simpsons, or something, you know. No, I'm best known for being fired from Band of Brothers. Well, it's great. And and by the time this episode comes out, you will already be well into the second season. But, uh, you know, mm-hmm. as we're recording, you just announced that season two will be starting, which I'm very excited about. Yeah. Uh, we're right in the thick of it. It's, it's, such a, it's such an immersive process making it because there's still stuff that we recorded prior to the pandemic that we have yet to find a place for in an episode because so many things got, you know, we had an, an outline when we were doing the first season, you know, like, Oh, it'll go here and this will happen. And then this will happen. And then certain things, events, large and small change the shape of, so there are some things that are really good that we keep having to kind of bump. <laughs> There's some stuff that might get bumped to season three, depending on how 
um, how things go because the first thing obviously that happened was uh, the pandemic um, and Tom Hanks uh, and Rita Wilson getting the coronavirus. There was a whole episode that was, you know, me uh, moving back in with my parents because everything was shutting down. I'm like, well, this wasn't part of the structure of season one. And then we heard from Seth Rogen, uh, who's who it turns out was a fan of the podcast and had heard his name mentioned as he was listening to it. And so that led the podcast in a whole other direction because, well, now we have to do an episode with Seth talking about how he tried out for Band of Brothers. And and so that's one of the things that's exciting about it is that you can, you know, we, we have like a plan for what the next 10 episodes will be, but I already have it in my mind that depending on how the first half of the season goes, the the second half has some flexibility to it in case something else uh, arises because there are, I can't say anything about them, but there are a few things that have popped up even in the last 72 hours where been contacted by a person that I think, Oh, well that could, that could be an episode, you know, or, you know, there, there are certain things that happen that are exciting, but that also means that work that we're doing on other episodes might get like pushed onto the back burner, but we work very hard to try to, to try to make this, uh, what seems like a very thin premise, but which, uh, in my mind, I, I'm, I'm always the most optimistic that, you know, this could go for a long time, you know, that I don't, I don't see it as something that um, that is just a, a short arc thing because I think there's so many other people's stories that can fold into uh, the the journey of this what we're kind of exploring. Yeah, well, I mean, you did the you did a whole episode about a different part that you had tried out for, and mm-hmm. isn't it romantic, right? Yeah, the, and and there's just this. It's a very cathartic show, you know, which I think I think is is was was great when it was out and is especially uh comforting now um amidst everything yeah because well one thing that i think is interesting because when when covid shut everything down and and things started getting really grim my initial reaction was well we're done i don't want to do this anymore and i i really thought like when i when i heard the news about tom hanks i genuinely i told people that that night and then the next day i was like podcast's over who cares like i don't want to do this and then thankfully they recovered and um you know we started having to adapt to this new um this new reality i started realizing that in a weird way as we finished the first season that the podcast is about something very small but i think one of the main themes of it is that it's a podcast about how do you adapt when you don't get what you want and we currently live in a world where to some extent, everybody uh, is, we're, we're all dealing with something huge that nobody wanted to deal with, you know, that, that nobody, nobody had factored in like a global pandemic that would change everything. And so that mindset of being able to figure out, well, how do I cope? Not just with, there's obviously, how do you cope with, you know, the, the, at the, at the darkest end of, of this, you have genuinely tragic things where people are dealing with the loss of life and the loss of loved ones. But also at the other end of it, you have things that seem small, but, you know, my parents, part of their routine every day was, you know, going out to lunch somewhere. That was like part of as, you know, they've, they're both in their seventies now. And, and that was sort of like their social life. That was like, that's when you'd get out and you'd see people, even if you didn't know anybody, you, that's, 
part of how you remain part of society. And now, you know, they're both just in the house. I mean, they've had me here for, for seven months or whatever now, and that's been a help. But even at that very small level, that those things make a huge difference. So I think the podcast, you know, being about not getting what you want in, in ways that are both big and very small. Uh, I've heard from a lot of people who have said, oh, no, this has actually been very helpful, very therapeutic for for getting into that mindset, which I think is a necessary thing. We all, we all still, I think, have to strap in for a while. This is going to this is not ending anytime soon, you know. I say that I say that not knowing when you're going to release this episode, knowing that it will be evergreen for a while. You know, I've been, <laughs> oh, yeah. one thing I've been tracking here, my parents subscribe to the local newspaper and there's a comics page and I've been tracking um, how the various newspaper uh, syndicated comics are either ignoring the new reality or dealing with it because they're all on long deadlines uh, ahead of time. So they, you know, some comic strips are, you can start to see them shifting. This even this past week, I noticed uh, one of the comic strips fully like went all in on we're going to make jokes about the virus and COVID and how things are now. And I thought, oh, this happened back in May or June that this cartoonist was like, oh, all right, you know, like they, they were thinking, well, this is for October, but I'll go ahead and make this joke now. Well, I mean, especially some of them, like it was very weird. It- you, you posted it, Blondie on and off was pandemic related. That's At the, times, Dagwood was working from home. That's the weirdest thing is that <laughs> there's one strip that in hindsight makes no sense because at the time it seemed it was about uh, how Blondie found like bulk toilet paper and she's and they're all celebrating saying best shopping day ever, which is clearly, you know, this was rooted in the early days of like Mar- yeah. March and April when there were these toilet paper shortages. But then within a week, they were going to a buffet. And I thought, well, <laughs> wait a second. Either either COVID is real in the world of Blondie or it's not. And if it's not, why were they so excited about all this toilet paper? You know, I, I subscribe to King Features. Mm-hmm. I pay my two bucks a month. King Features will send me the comics I like yeah. because I have nothing else going on. Um, and I, I was getting caught up on them. And I very quickly realized that Dean Young definitely just has templates of specific poses and and speech bubbles and he's just plugging in words at this point yeah i i it really it really is a bummer to me not to get off on a completely different <laughs> this could be the whole podcast but it really is a bummer to me how i feel like when i was a kid i'd read the comics in the newspaper and uh there were a handful of sort of legacy strips that were sort of in that period of transitioning but now there's so many kind of zombie strips that are they're just an echo of what they were when they're in some cases, their parents created them. And now it's just like a, a family business has been passed down or it's been handed off to new owners that are completely unrelated. But I just think like uh, there, there are some great cartoonists out there who could be doing strips that I don't know, would be more vibrant than uh, some, you know, some of these things are like Blondie, Blondie started when in 19, is it 29 or 30 i think maybe 30 so we're gearing up on the centenary like the centennial um anniversary of blondie and i don't know that it really has said a lot of new things over the the span of my lifetime if that if that centennial happens maybe my arthur lake autograph will go for more than five dollars who knows uh i hope so i hope so (laughs) But, it, you know, it's weird to bring it around to that, especially because I'm sure 
in our intro, Arthur Lake comes up because I bring him up a lot uh, as as the world's biggest Arthur Lake fan by knowing who he is. Um, but, you know, we are talking about comedy stars in a way, and we're talking about comedy in a time of crisis and panic, which is why I'm so excited to have you on for this. I sent you, weirdly, the way that things work, uh, you were one of the first people we reached out to mm-hmm. uh, for this show, and I sent you essentially the, you know, the full season one list. Yeah. Uh, and it just so happened with scheduling and all that that, you know, this is coming later in the, the season. But we I always knew I wanted John for this. And, and you said either Kane or Dr. Strangelove. And I felt like especially because, uh, you know, especially with what you do with George Lucas Talk Show and what you do uh, with there was another show you did that was Cluck-A-Doodle-Doo that I was a big fan of. Talk-A-Doodle-Doo. Talk-A-Doodle-Doo. Uh, I'm so sorry. Cluck-A-Doodle-Doo would be a good podcast about Cluck-A-Doodle-Doo. Wasn't wasn't this the Christmas special Cluck a Doodle Yule or was it Talk a Doodle Yule? Okay, I completely screwed it up. It's My right. apologies. No, um, Cluck a Doodle Doo would would have been a good title as well. It was in fact at that uh, at that show at the Cluck a Doodle Yule that I uh, connected with Riley Soliner, who was previously on our show talking uh, Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times. So it all yeah. it all comes together. I'm just I guess we're slowly building up the Planet Scum roster on here. <laughs> That's great. That's great. <laughs> I think you can collect them all eventually. I'm so excited to have you on for this. When you picked Dr. Strange, I felt like it was the perfect opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, especially because, you know, one, there's that whole Peter Sellers element to it. Yeah. And also just on your own Twitter account, you've been very candid about feeling a sense of anxiety about uh, the uh, possible impending end of the world as it feels. And that's really what this film kind of plays on. Yeah. You know, Kubrick, when he was filming Lolita, thought, like at any minute he could get killed by an H bomb. Yeah. And that's where this script came from. So I'm very excited to get into it. So to start this off, as we always do, I am going to read uh, the National Film Registry statement as to why they selected this film. The edgy satire, as written by director Stanley Kubrick, Peter George, and Terry Southern, and outrageously funny performances, including three from Peter Sellers, have kept Dr. Strangelove fresh and entertaining for decades. A U.S. bomber on a routine flight pattern near the Soviet Union receives orders to drop its nuclear payload on the Ruskies and turn the Cold War into a hot one. The orders were given by the highly paranoid uh, General Jack D. Ripper, Sterling Hayden, to stem a communist plot in which Americans were being sapped of their precious bodily fluids. Meanwhile, the president, Sellers again, seeks guidance from his top Pentagon advisors, including a warmongering general, George C. Scott. The plot thickens when the Soviet ambassador, Peter Bull, informs the Americans of the latest Soviet weapons technology, a doomsday machine, that will destroy the entire world if the Russians are attacked. But the former Nazi Dr. Strangelove, Sellers yet again, has an ingenious plan for surviving a potential nuclear holocaust. Kubrick, Sellers, and the screenwriters were nominated for Oscars but lost out to My Fair Lady. The film did bring home several BAFTA awards in the UK. So that's what the registry had to say about why it was selected. Uh, Connor, out of that list that we sent you, why why Doctor Strangelove? Well, I mean, I I love this movie. I I think it's perfect. It's my favorite Kubrick movie um, by some distance. I, I I love Kubrick, but there's if I if you had to do the you know burning building test, I wouldn't hesitate. I would it would be. I think Doctor Strangelove is. It's also it's also interesting because it's. Um, I mean, there are comedic elements to, um, uh, several, you know, of Kubrick's movies, but 
this is probably the only one that is an outright comedy, and yet it's not really like any other... I just don't think it's like any other movie. No, it's not. So much so that um, I listen to Joe Dante's podcast, and he always talks about, whenever Strange Love is brought up, that uh, the opening weekend, nobody left. Mm-hmm. He saw it opening weekend. It was quiet because everyone thought it was a sh- it was a serious movie. Yeah. It wasn't until a week later when people started hearing like the word of mouth and like what Kubrick was saying, and they got the joke that they started realizing it was okay to laugh. Yeah, because it as much as it's like, oh yeah, there's the character named Jack D. Ripper and you know, Tur- uh, what's his name, Turgidson, You know these silly names, and you know you got Slim Pickens in his cowboy hat. It isn't that wildly out of left field to think like okay this doesn't seem too odd especially as it's aged pretty well sadly yeah. with the characters we have in uh positions of power which uh kubrick said um the jack d ripper character is like yeah uh there's nothing that makes me feel like there isn't a guy like this or many guys like this just running around in the military or in uh you know political office yeah well, and there's also the way that the movie starts, because it starts with that sort of serious voiceover and just panning over the clouds before it goes into the airplane refueling. I can imagine if you didn't know anything about it, it would be easy to go into this thing and from that opening be like, got it. I understand what this movie is. It's a nuclear war drama. Right. Especially with its origins in that it comes from a book that was a very serious book, like straight laced. It wasn't a comedy, wasn't satirical. It was a thriller. And Kubrick, in writing the script, was like, well, I, I think I just wrote all of this kind of funny. So then he hired uh, Terry Southern to make it funnier, got Peter Sellers to do three roles, originally supposed to be four, but just three now. And they leaned into it. And I know Ter- uh, Peter George, the author of the book uh, Red Alert, was not thrilled about this change, but... I think anybody that knew the book or knew that it was based on a book or anything, and then you see, like Mike said, that beginning, especially because I don't think audiences in 1963 were all too prepared for a subtle joke about planes fucking. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and it's interesting if you think about, for example, uh, another movie that comes to mind is the uh, the original movie Casino Royale which is like, oh, let's do a comedic take on James Bond instead of making, instead of actually adapting Casino Royale, let's make it funny. And in that instance, it was kind of the opposite of the results of Dr. Strangelove in that it was overtly like, you couldn't miss it, it was a comedy. And anyone who was invested in, you know, it would take, you know, decades before people who were invested in the Ian Fleming novel got an actual movie of Casino Royale that was... You know, because that was considered one of the the more exciting of the Fleming novels, and then the, what you got basically was a spoof. Whereas this is not like a spoof of the source material; it's really a a, a reimagining of the whole concept. It, 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 no other movie I feel like has this kind of origin story to it. I, I I had my own personal experience with this movie, and I don't remember whether it was my twelfth or thirteenth birthday, but lots of things about Dr. Strangelove. I kept reading whenever, you know, I was sort of discovering the great comedy films for adults at that point. And I kept reading about how this was uh, on, on lists of, you know, it was always near the top or at the top of the greatest film comedies of all time. 
and I was reading all these books of film criticism and there was no place, no video rental place in town had Dr. Strange Love. I looked everywhere. So I finally ordered a copy on VHS from Sam Goody. And at that point it was one of those things where you'd, you'd fill out a little form at the store and two weeks later, three weeks later, they'd have your movie and it, you know, it was probably like, like 25 or $30. I think it was, it was not cheap. And I ordered it to show at my birthday party. And I, 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 I wanted to see it for the first time with a group of people. And I got up and I announced to all my friends who I had invited to this party that we were, we were about to watch the funniest movie of all time. <laughs> and I put the tape in and the opening starts and you have that crawl, that silent crawl and then you have the shot of those the mountains coming through the clouds and the the announcer saying you know about the doomsday device and there's no punchline and then you fade to black and it fades up on the planes refueling none of us got that that was a sex joke it, like it, it just was completely we were just like it was just slow footage of airplanes refueling and then lots of long the the long sequence of like tick the the like this sort of ticker tape not ticker tape but like that kind of like old 1960s computer printout kind of noise and uh, uh, Mandrake you know finding this transistor radio and going and report and just like it's so deep into this movie before anything even hints that there will be something funny happening and everybody who was in the room watching this was silent and then one or two people left and then a couple more that went in the other room to like play ping pong or something. And <laughs> eventually the whole room, like everyone left and it was just me watching the movie. And then I, tr I turned it off and nobody said, nobody said anything. Nobody was like, this sucks or everyone. Cause I had made such a big deal out of it. They all just quietly just disregarded it. And I didn't say anything about it. And then I, I think I watched it either later that night or the next day. And I watching it on my own. I was like, Oh yeah, this is funny, but it, it, it has like at least 30 minutes of setup before you start to realize what's funny. Even as more broadly comedic characters start to show up, it still doesn't, to me, it doesn't really get going until like the president is on the phone with the Russian premiere, you know, like that's when you start to realize like, Oh, now we're cooking and it's still pretty subtle. <laughs> My first time seeing it, uh, I was around the same age you're describing. Like I, I think cause I was, I, I was something I was hooked on the uh, and I've brought it up on the show before, but like I remember my Hollywood video had the AFI list countdown, mm -hmm. the original AFI list. And so I was like, I need to see all of these because I, you know, I, I think, yeah, I was in middle school and I, I realized like, oh, if you watch movies, you'll be able to talk to grownups because they'll they understand that it's a common ground. And so I rented Dr. Strange Love, brought it home. And my dad said he saw it. And he goes, I hate that movie. It's not funny. Everybody says it's funny. It's not funny. I'm like, well, I'm going to watch it. He goes, ah, yeah, it sucks. And we're watching it. Uh, I guess he had seen it when he was a kid, and, and we're watching it. And he's got, like, a scowl on his face the whole time. And then we're having dinner later that night, and he just kept quoting little lines. Yeah. And you could tell, like, even though he wanted to still hate it, there was that moment of, like, there's stuff you can't, despite how subtle it is, there's stuff you can't deny in this yeah. film. You know? Well, it gets onto your skin. I mean, uh, I, I honestly don't remember the first time watching this movie i i have i would probably be college maybe after college at some point but it's just it's just kind of like imprinted in my brain as like it's it's just been there my whole life so i can't even like find the demarcation line 
for me, I think the moment where you start realizing that it's like it's playing in this weirdly comedic, almost juvenile, but like still not it's still playing at this elevated level is when Sterling Hayden go, starts going on the fluids rant, which is where you like finally start going, okay, this is because even with the Russian premiere stuff, you'd be like, okay, I mean, maybe there's a little humor in this, but it's not like a humorous movie. But once you got Sterling Hayden ranting and raving about fluids, while Peter Sellers is just like, oh God, this guy's fucking nuts. There's also something to the humor of it that is, I don't know how best to describe it, but there's something about it where it's, there's definitely a a very Britishness to it. I mean, obviously you got Sellers in there and, and his, his collaborator, uh, Richard Lester puts out Hard Day's Night the same year. Which, while they're not the same film, have the same kind of thing where there's this type of British humor that we get over here in the States. Like, we understand it, but I don't know if we do it in the States, which is just watching people be silly. Yeah. You know, or, or and, and by that, you know, or like staid, uh, you know, very stiff people also being silly. I, I don't know what it is to that specifically, but I feel like if it was an American film, it would be more subtle or more broad, but this, there's this weird middle ground that, that it's, it's funny too. Cause, um, I like Kubrick may, you know, kind of became a expat living in Britain towards the second half of his life, but he's an American, but even he knew like, uh, in the editing of the movie, like this fine line he was having to walk because we, I think anybody that's a film fan and loves Dr. Strangelove knows about the cut pie fight ending. Mm-hmm. Yes. And um, he said, um, I cut it because watching it, it pushed the movie too far into farce and not satire. Like, I wanted it to be satirical, not farcical. And it, it's, it's, it's a fine line, but when you think about the movie, like, yeah, it never goes into any place too too silly or over the top. When I try to think about, like, what would a... What would a a week of films if i was programming a week of films that were strange love was like at the top of the of the pyramid and i wanted to like show some complimentary things a lot of the films that come to my mind are things like um four lions um or uh, uh the death of stalin or in the loop like the two uh, armando yanucci yeah. movies the the central joke of of Doctor Strangelove is really about like look at these assholes, you know, like these are the guys in charge, and look how they fuck it up. And that's when I was watching the death of Stalin. The death of Stalin, I was like, oh, this is history, but history is just a bunch of assholes, and they're and look at them fucking this thing up. And and I kind of feel like in in the case of of you, whenever I think about that pie fight. I don't even have the curiosity to want to see it as a deleted scene. Like I the, just knowing that it's true and seeing like the still photos, I I just it's so clearly inferior to the ending they ended up with, which is so funny, but in a way that is um you know, if like if if surprise is the thing that often makes something funny, that it takes you by surprise, and that's the thing that often makes older comedies get less funny over time because uh, the, the certain comedic ry- rhythms become too familiar. I think the timing of the final cut from Dr. Strangelove saying I can walk to that nuclear explosion 
is still so surprising. Like after all this time and after all the times I've seen it, it still makes me laugh when it happens. There's also a uh, and and just to clarify for our listeners who may not know what we're discussing is the originally the film was shot to end with everyone in the war room engaged in a massive pie fight and. I remember the first time I heard about the pie fight, I heard the sort of urban legend that the reason it was cut. I mean, there, there were changes made to the film in response to the Kennedy assassination. Mm-hmm. But I remember you know, like the, the kind of condensed history that you get through little trivia books was that they cut the pie fight because somebody yelled, the president's been shot and they didn't want to offend mm-hmm. people. Oh, um, it's it's not even that. I It's the exact, it's the president gets hit and George C. Scott yells, our young president has just been taken down in his prime. Jesus. All right. Yeah. I mean, they did have to change things for that. Uh, you know, um, obviously Slim Slim Pickens has a line where he was originally supposed to say this will give you this. This would make a good weekend in Dallas. And they changed it to Vegas. But to, to touch on what Connor's saying about the ending, it's 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 kind of one of those, you know, especially the, you know, watching the the montage of the nuclear weapons going off in the with that sense of it's it's so bleak you have to laugh in a way mm-hmm. it makes me think of um one of my favorite movie endings of all time is nashville yeah uh the robert altman film which you know despite not being as overtly comedic still has that same tone to me uh of whenever i'm feeling absolutely hopeless in humanity i think of you know, it don't worry me, or I think of we'll meet again, or I think of one of those moments of just this, you know, uh, Sam Neill in the mouth of madness laughing in the theater moments, mm-hmm. you know? There we go. I was just going to say, you you best you best put in the mouth of madness in your mouth. Well, that's that's your go-to. When, 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 when you and I feel hopeless, you'll know because one of us will post one of those scenes on Twitter with no commentary. Mm-hmm. But it is, it, it, and I guess that's kind of the thing, like you're saying, kind of about, about you know, Death of Stalin in the loop, I, I think there's also something to it in that, you know, there's a lot more of this in Armando Iannucci, Armando Iannucci in, in British yeah. humor of this idea of, oh, the people who are in charge, the higher class, the upper class, are idiots, are are going to get us all killed, they're assholes. And I don't think we do that as much here because I think there isn't this sense of, like, static class. Mm-hmm. You know, it's I mean... Like- Sellers. When I think about I was just as as you were listing different different things that, that I also the ending of Python movies go to these like dark places where it's like King Arthur and his knights getting arrested or a bunch of people on crosses. One thing that's interesting when I think of like the uh, the Christopher Guest uh, movies like Waiting for Guffman and Best in Show and A Mighty Wind, um, if you look at the deleted the original endings for those movies are all significantly darker with all of those movies. They fil- originally filmed versions that w- had that co- kind of darker sensibility. And in every case they made what I think was a correct decision, which is, Oh no, you come to like uh, uh, these characters so much like Fred Willard and Catherine O'Hara. You've come to like them over the course of waiting for Guffman. And we don't want to see these characters catatonically depressed living in LA. So they had to film a different ending where they they're they're in LA and they're struggling but they're still they still have their sort of uh zest for life. And there is something about it that like the British are able to pull off a certain kind of comedic bleak ending as funny as I find 
you know, George C. Scott and and President Muffley and as much as I enjoy all these characters, never in my life have I been sad that they all died. <laughs> it's yeah. never even occurred yeah. to me to think, oh no, <laughs> they all died. Um and yet the movie is not a bummer. No. That is such an amazing trick to pull off. You know, it's funny because I think like Mike was saying about how we don't really do this kind of thing of like pointing out the flaws and the fallacies and how fucked up the ruling class is because uh, America likes its myths. America likes to convince itself that uh, we've never done anything wrong and everyone in power is is good and right. And also we're, we're only one good decision away from being rich and powerful just like these people too. I mean, we're seeing, we're seeing the... F- the fallout of that right now now over the last four years of people that genuinely don't realize that they are the marks that are getting reamed out by these people in power just because they'll come out on stage and be like oh yeah i love you guys i love you guys and then it's like well you guys need to pay attention because they don't actually care about you um i do think there is something modern american that is getting to something similar to dr strange love and that Ayanuchi sort of thing and it it took a while for people to kind of get onto it because they didn't realize it was doing this at first and it's Succession. Yeah, yeah. Succession is doing this completely and I remember when the first season came out everyone was like oh I don't know it's like rich people porn like yeah we get it these rich people are weird and crazy but then like episode four or five you felt like on Twitter and just in the world in general now that it's like this award winning show it like something clicked and everyone's like oh I get it now it's it's this big satirical like not like gut busting laughter joke show but just one of those oh everything's so fucked up you just have to laugh at how even miserable these pricks are and they're in charge there's a quote and i'm sure i i i'll attribute it to bono but i think he's probably just quoting an older uh, observation that's that's widely held but it it's really stuck with me since i heard him say it he was driving around somewhere being interviewed and he said the difference between Ireland and America, and I think it's also true of England, but but he was saying it about Ireland in particular. He said is that in Ireland, the common man looks up at the mansion on the hill. Oh, no, he said in, in America, the common man looks up at the mansion on the hill and he says, someday I'm going to live in that mansion. And in Ireland, the common man looks up at the mansion on the hill and thinks, someday I'm going to get that guy. you know and there's yeah you're right and i think well i was thinking about actually in terms of different responses you know in america because i think you know even tom bringing up secession i think what we do when we watch a show or a movie about the corrupt or you know the assholes in power we, we as an audience are rooting for them to get their comeuppance we're rooting for them to get taken down which is why Anytime there's a story arc, really, about, you know, whether it's a face in the crowd or Batman Returns, we all love that moment where they get caught on a recording saying something bad and everybody turns on them. And in Britain, they don't really do that. I was thinking about, actually, um, a song that uh, you yourself sang on your uh, on your live stream recently, which is uh, Modern Major General mm-hmm. uh, from Pirates of Penzance, and how here in the States... We know that song mostly as it's a silly song sung by a silly character, and it just it's a lot of words, um, which is how I always knew it. And then I had to sing it once uh, for a recital um, back in high school. And when 
you get to that final verse, which nobody in America really thinks about, which is this, uh, the final verse of the song is him, you know, he spent the whole rest of the song listing all the things he knows, you know, uh, that he, he can, uh, you know, he's very good at uh, quadra- quadratic equations and he can uh, list all these things. And then when the, the final verse is him going, you know, uh, when I can tell, in fact, when I can finally tell its sight a Mauser rifle from a javelin. And he, the final verse is him listing how he knows all these obscure things and does not know the basics of combat. And he's, you know, he's the general. And I think that that's the joke that lands in its original form and in its original country. And I think that here we kind of lose that punchline uh, because the whole joke of it, which is a lot of, especially British war comedies, uh, are just ripping on the idea that the generals are all rich kids and uh you know people who have no sense of actual combat which is where sellers got the idea for his uh one of the three characters he plays uh is based on his impressions of his senior officers when he was in the military mm. the uh well, i'm blanking on the name now uh mandrake colonel lionel mandrake he apparently felt uh, according to his uh biographer that that was the easiest one to play because he had spent so much time in the Royal Air Force in World War II mimicking his superior officers, you know, and how just what what absolute uh, dunces they were. But I think that, yeah, I think that that's an element in this that I, I think is so compelling. Yeah, because, I mean, con- contrasting this with Citizen Kane, even though there are um, funny parts in Citizen Kane, it's, you know, it's a, it's a drama, you know, like our, and I think... Citizen Kane and Doctor Strangelove, in some ways, are similar. In in like if you if you put them right up next to each other, Citizen Kane, it wouldn't take much to turn it into a comedy, and Doctor Strangelove, it wouldn't you wouldn't have to turn the dial much to make it a drama. They're 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 right on the edge. I feel like of sort of I think that Kane is definitely presented as this like tragic figure. But it wouldn't take much to make that movie into uh, uh, more of a, a, a movie about uh, a more like that, that would feel more buffoonish or, you know, that wouldn't take everything quite as uh, seriously, you know? Well, I mean, they pretty much did make the serious version of Strangelove with Failsafe because I watched that uh, two months ago, maybe three months ago when the Criterion sale hit yeah. and... I loved it. It was great, but it re- it really is like almost exactly Doctor Strangelove, but played straight. Yeah. Uh, like there's a little bit of black comedy to it, a little bit of like, yeah, isn't this all just crazy? But it's still just played straight. And I think uh, Peter George even sued them because they're like, you just filmed my book. Kubrick. Well, Kubrick was involved in that suit. What happened was. Kubrick recognized that this other station or this other studio was, was doing uh, Failsafe, which, uh, yeah, the book is very similar to Red Alert, the book Strange Love's based on. So, in fact, uh, Kubrick, along with Peter George and Paramount, sued um, to try and halt the production because he felt like it infringed on – because it violated the book's copyright, he felt, and he had the rights to the book, it infringed, therefore, on him. And the settlement they reached uh, was that Paramount would also distribute Failsafe, but that Failsafe would come out, I believe, seven months after Strangelove, 
Uh, so it was production delays were a nightmare for them because uh, they had already signed uh, Henry Fonda. They'd already done all this stuff. Uh, so they got delayed, and they would get released seven months later. And the people involved in the production were not al- of Failsafe were not allowed to promote Failsafe in any way that would be disparaging to Doctor Strangelove. Mm. So it, it, it was very similar stories, but also... Kubrick essentially just wanted to strangle that baby in the okay. cradle. Like he he was he was he wanted no competition. Really interesting, also because that was that was the deal that was uh, that was also a provision for The Shining when Stephen King wanted to make his version for TV. That part of getting the rights to make another version was that he had to stop talking shit about Kubrick's version of The Shining. <laughs> so it's interesting how like that was important to Kubrick that like you have to stop talking bad about my work well it's funny too that kubrick has a bit of that uh side to him um almost this defensiveness and kind of knowing that there's that outside forces or outside events could uh taint his movie because i mean you know we have this movie delaying itself to get out of uh the way of the jfk assassination and um he does it later with a clockwork orange that when gang violence starts erupting in England after Clockwork is released, he goes, uh, pull this movie. I don't want my movie being forever tainted as the movie that spilled blood in England. Right. You know, I, he, he, for a guy who is notoriously like a taskmaster and this perfectionist and who, who seems to be very cold and distant does seem to have this emotional, like, register that he knows what i don't know maybe a morality like he knows what's right and wrong and that sometimes this shit might not be the right time to do something even if i spent all this time doing it i think myths myth making has made stanley kubrick a robot which he decidedly isn't because if you talk to people who worked with him and who knew him they paint a very different picture you know we kind of picture stanley kubrick sitting in a room of all white walls and just feverishly typing all the time you know nicole kidman talks about having dinner with him and, and Tom Cruise. um my favorite is uh matthew modine uh he he stopped by uh, the theater that i worked at and i, I had the uh, very great privilege of getting to talk to him for a little bit and he was like yeah no people think of stanley as this absolute control freak maniac goes first off I would I would go to his house and watch him play with his dogs like he was, you know, and then uh, Modine dropped this that uh, Modine changed the ending of Full Metal Jacket. Kubrick originally had it. He had no idea how to end it. And he apparently was thinking about, well, Private Joker obviously has to die in the end. But is he going to get shot by the Vietnamese or is he going to kill himself? What's going to do? And apparently Modine just showed up at his trailer one day and went, no, I think he should live and gave this impassioned speech for why Joker should live. And Kubrick went. All right, that's the ending now. Well, I mean, isn't that also just, I mean, the most iconic moment in Clockwork Orange is is that also of just, well, we don't have a song or anything here, so Malcolm, just sing a song while you're raping this woman. And yeah. Malcolm literally only knew one song, and it was that. And, you know, Kubrick's like, yeah, that's great. Prince, yeah, move on, let's move on to the next scene. You know, three weeks later when they finished rolling 150 times. Yeah, you hear that a lot. I mean, even with this, um, you know, it it's because of the movies. It's it's I, people have. I mean, like we hear the stories about the constant, you know, shoots a hut does a hundred, two hundred takes or whatever, and that his movies take forever to make, and that his movies after two thousand one are colder, a little more emotionally distant, not as 
uh, attuned to hu- uh, humor as a movie like this mm-hmm. is, you know, so people start telling themselves, oh, well, this guy, now that he's got all this control, he must be this really weird, cold man who has no connection to humanity. And it's always funny when guys like this get this reputation. And I mean, it, it happens with Nolan. Everyone thinks Nolan has this stick up his ass. And he's like, oh, yeah, I love going to the theaters and seeing Michael Bay movies. And you go, what? You? Yeah, I mean, one of Christopher Nolan's uh, favorite movies is *Magruber*. One of one of Stanley Kubrick's favorite movies is *The Jerk*. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, I mean, I think certainly one of the things that I think about a lot because George C. Scott in this movie. I mean, I go back and forth as to you know what are my favorite things in the film, but as great as Peter Sellers is in all of his roles. George C. Scott is probably always my favorite part of the movie. Yes, me too. And and he's just George C. Scott is always great throughout his career, whether he's in good things or bad things. I, I always like watching uh, George C. Scott, but there's something particularly about George C. Scott as a young, intense actor that he often, um, like in Anatomy of a Murder, it's one of those performances where he's he's opposite. He's like he's sort of like the the bad attorney who's opposite uh, Jimmy Stewart. And you you feel like you're watching uh, one kind of one generation's style of acting suddenly being like um, faced with the younger generation's like energy of acting. And George C. Scott talks so fast that you you can't even imitate it. It's it's he's so he's so electric. You know, and in this movie, I feel like this is one of the things that is I think particular to Kubrick that. The performance he got out of Drissy Scott often involved a certain amount of trickery because he would have him do things in rehearsal and tell them that he wasn't filming. He'd like make him try things and he'd use takes that uh, Drissy Scott did not think were um, going to be uh, used and that it was shocking. It was like he sort of, it's a similar thing to what he did. I remember reading an interview with Kubrick's editor for The Shining um, talking about how a lot of times people will say, oh, I love that movie, but Jack Nicholson's really over the top in it. Like, that'll be the thing that someone might criticize. Like, well, he's a little over the top at, at, at times. And the the editor was saying, if you watch the first 70 takes or the first 50 takes of any of these scenes, you will see the Jack Nicholson of Chinatown and... Uh, King of Marvin Gardens, and you'll see the the subtle, grounded Jack Nicholson that you know had all this you know great control and just you know like he wasn't. And then he would get to take eighty or ninety or something, and there'd be a certain part where he'd lose it. And and Kubrick always picked the craziest take. And sometimes the they would be like, well, "Do you, are you sure you don't want one of these other?" So he takes no, no, no. I want that one where he's going bananas, and uh, and it really is. It's interesting to think about as an actor in terms of how how much control he had over designing the actor's choices out of the options. You know, when you do that many takes as an actor, you, you with each take you're losing some element of control because you're giving the director more possible ways to combine your performance and make it into something that is completely new. I always think they're as, as great as the wild takes are in the shining when he's losing his mind. 
there's always a part of me that wonders, is there a version of this movie where when he goes to the job interview, he doesn't already seem like a murderer? You know, like, is there a version of, there must be a version of the movie where when they tell him, we have to tell you a guy killed his family here, that he doesn't go, I can't wait to tell my wife about it. She'll be thrilled. You know, like, she's a true crime nut. Uh, but I wouldn't. But and I wouldn't want a version of Doctor Strangelove where George C. Scott doesn't do like a a weird somersault all on the floor. Kubrick thought Scott was doing that on purpose, and Scott just fell and continued going, which is just—it's so perfect that everything about George C. Scott's performance is essentially just an accident. Which you contrast it to uh, Slim Pickens, who uh, Kubrick just said, "Yeah, just be you, just." Just read these lines like Slim Pickens, and he only gave him Slim Pickens' scenes, so Slim Pickens is just being Slim Pickens, and, you know, Kubrick knew this weirdo cowboy ex-football player is gonna, it fits just naturally as himself fits this weird tone I'm trying to go for, which you then contrast it with Sterling Hayden, who he'd worked with before on The Killing, and he was just like, yeah, just be Sterling Hayden. Because I want you to be playing this as straight and as humanly possible with all of this gravitas as you're saying the most ridiculous shit about fluids and how Russians are trying to sap men's potency by making them drink water. And, you know, those three performances, I, you know, Peter Sells does get the most talk in this movie about his performances, but I do genuinely kind of love Scott. Pickens and Hayden mm-hmm. the best out of all of them yeah. just because of how like they're like the holy trinity mm-hmm. of the tone of this movie yeah and also is there an is I mean talking about his precious bodily fluids is there anything like that in any movie prior to this like is, is, there, a movie, <laughs> no. is there a movie before this that even alludes to the existence of ejaculate you know? No, I don't think so. It's funny rewatching it where you just go, oh, this guy, uh, you know, Stanley Kubrick essentially predicted QAnon. And this, you know, in this movie, you realize after you, when you're a grown up, like, oh, this guy's doing all of this because he can't admit he's impotent, which is, again, another thing that has haunted our country for the last 60, 70, whatever years of just, well, we have all these warmongers and uh, people on a certain side of the aisle that just keep ruining everything because their dicks don't work. It's it's and it's to go back to Scott. It's so weird because he really doesn't do Doctor Strange Love is his first comedy, and um, even if you go on Letterbox and you just filter by comedy, he's does not do a lot. No, he didn't want to be funny. That's why he had to trick him. George C. Scott had has his entire career had such a huge stick up his ass. He was just like, I'm not going to demean myself by doing a comedy. I'm not going to be a big clown for you. I mean, he does. There's a there's a satirical film that we'll be covering on a future season uh, called The Hospital that he's mm-hmm. in. Yeah, Patty yeah. yeah, and there is a couple like there's. He did a movie with Tony Curtis called Not with My Wife. You don't, which uh, I'm I've never heard of before. I'm reading the synopsis. Apparently, it's uh, the two of them are in the army. Scott gets injured. Curtis pretends that he's dead so he can marry his wife. Uh, you know, and then besides that, uh, I don't know, you got cartoon all-stars to the rescue when he's the voice of Smoke. Like, there's not a lot that's comedic about him, but he's so good in this, and he's so f- there was There was a, funny. There was a sitcom there was a sitcom he was on that I remember watching called Mr. President, 
which was on Fox in the late eighties. It was an early Fox sitcom. Uh, 24 episodes. Like it, it, it lasted a full season back when that was a full network season. Um, can I, can I, can I ask you, Connor? And I, you don't have to answer this if you think you might get in trouble. If you had to pick Mr. President or 1600 Pen, which, which do you feel is the better one season White House comedy? I mean, I don't, I don't know that I, you know, I'm friends with, I'm friends with people <laughs> who work on 1600 Pen, so they have the edge, um, because they've been very good to us at the George Lucas talk show. But I'm very curious. I'd be very curious to do a 24 episode watch along of Mr. President if there was any way of finding it. There's also something called the bank shot. Um, yes. Uh, yeah, I feel like there are a few things, but he's also and of course hardcore, which uh, we all know is one of oh his. Oh my god, uh, hardcore! Yeah. Hardcore <laughs> is um, I just saw it for the first time in the early days of pandemic, t- pandemic, and I watched it like a web series. I would watch a few minutes of it every day. It's not supposed to be a comedy, but it, uh, oh boy, it is. I mean, the, the just just if I may, if I may, the. The, the movie that was a movie that I always saw the video box in the video store and I always thought like oh no that's going to be too intense I sort of in my mind was like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer which I still have yet to see because I'm a little afraid of it and hardcore it, it, you have this <laughs> image of, of of George C. Scott holding his head in his hands and the tagline is oh my god is that my daughter and it's about like his daughter runs away and he finds out she's in she's working in like underground pornographic films and he goes into the underworld to rescue her and Peter Boyle plays the private detective who he hires to find his daughter and then Peter Boyle and this scene I will never I will never understand this behavior Peter Boyle comes to him and says I got a lead on finding your daughter and instead of telling him she's in this porno film he rents a porno theater for a half hour or whatever doesn't tell Jersey Scott who's a who's a Calvinist this is a midwestern Calvinist has him go in and says sit down he says and Jersey Scott says what is this he says just sit down and he shows him his daughter in like a, a gangbang porno film and Jersey Scott doesn't get up and go like throttle him he sits there as if he's a hostage and he's being forced and he, there's this scene where Jersey Scott is so committed, and he's just, turn it off. Turn it off. Turn it off! <laughs> just starts screaming. As if he couldn't just get up and run out of the room. And it, and I never will understand why. There is something so amazing about watching Paul Schrader deal with sexuality on screen because he is such a... F- there is something so clearly deranged in his sex life because... You watch that or you watch Cat People, you know, he decided, oh, how am I going to remake this Jacques Tournay horror movie where you never see the animals and it's like all about shadows and, you know, hinting at monsters. He's like, oh, I know, I'm going to make it a movie about Malcolm McDowell and Katja, um, Natasha Kinski as <laughs> brother and sisters who are ancient cat people and they can only fuck each other and not turn into cats and kill the people they're fucking, you know. That's what that's what Paul Schrader saw in this fucking movie. It's a movie about cat people trying to fuck their brother and sister. You know, good job, Paul. It's it's. <laughs> I wish he brought some of that derangement to his Lindsay Lohan movie because oh boy, yeah. 
Well, the uh, now, as funny as Drew C. Scott is in Doctor Strange Love, nothing is funnier than the part in Hardcore where he decides the way he'll find his daughter is to pretend that he's making a porno movie oh and have a series of of male actors come into his hotel room. He has a, this mustache on, and there's and his exhaustion at when someone's like, "Do you want to see it?" and he's like, "Sure." <laughs> you know, he has these like male porno actors who are coming in to audition for him. And there's a scene where uh, a black pornographic actor comes in and he knows it's not, he, he knows that he's only looking to see the guy that he re- will recognize from this film with his daughter. And he knows it's a white guy. So he says, no, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, I don't need to see any more from you. And the guy assumes it's because he's being racist. When really he's just, well, no, I'm not really making a porno. I'm just trying to find my... Like, he can't say any of the things to uh, disabuse this man of the notion that he's being discriminatory. Um, what a crazy movie. But anyway, back to Dr. Strangelove. George C. Scott in this movie, it, it's it's almost like it's an experiment because it's an in some ways an unintentional performance by a great actor that Kubrick managed to get these things out of him that in some ways he wasn't offering, you know, like he, he sort of trusted Kubrick that he wasn't going to use these weird sort of the, basically he had a performance that was made out of what he thought were rehearsals, outtakes, mistakes, things like that. And when he first saw it, he didn't know what to make of it. And I think eventually came to appreciate what he'd done, but it's such an interesting thing to do to an actor there's almost a little bowfinger element to it of like yes watching something you kind of shouldn't be watching because George C. scott didn't like approve of this getting out it doesn't you know it's like there's a little bit of danger like watching this movie just because of shit like that and just how on point it is and it's satirical edge where you just go man this guy really had balls making a movie like this and then you know yeah. kind of tricking his actor well, even, into even in 2020 some of the things that buck turgidson says are literally things that the pro trump side of the pandemic oh yeah has, they will say which is like they will dismiss the death of hundreds of thousands of people as you know i'm not saying we're not going to get our hair must you know like yeah. we that kind of cavalier language about mass casualties is, sadly has held up as satire. They've not, you wouldn't if you were remaking this. Yeah. I don't think you'd have to update too much. It's it's one of the reasons why I love Scott um, the most in this movie because he, as funny as he is, and how on point accidentally he is in this role. It's like this is a guy we you can believe exists. You know, for, for as much as it is crazy in 63, 64 that, you know, Kubrick made a movie that was like, oh, yeah, by the way, we have Nazis working for us. Yeah. Um, which wasn't really, like, well known at the time. So, like, that's another element of, like, danger to us of him being like, yeah, we, we've employed Nazis. And they're, like, in, you know, giving us suggestions on how, like, how many casualties are okay and how to nuke the other countries. But, like, Strangelove... For as accurate as that was, and as crazy as that was, Strangelove is still, like, kind of cartoonish. He's not a guy you're going to see, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but George C. Scott, we we see him. Like, he's on Fox News every day, you know. He's making decisions. You know, he's one of the kiss-asses that Trump hires because one of the military guys that 
decided to show some spine, got fired, and he needed a lackey. Yeah. Now, Tom, I do want to push back a little bit on you saying, oh, we didn't really know about Operation Paperclip because one of the wildest things in the world uh, is, go back a couple of years, 1955, if you go on Disney+, Plus and you watch Man in Space, which was an episode of the Disneyland TV show, uh, Walt introduces you to uh, our great friend Werner von Braun, former Nazi. So it was something that like we weirdly knew, but I think what this film gets so right is the idea of it points out how absurd, you know, we were aware, I think America was aware of like, oh yeah, there were some German scientists and we brought them over and you didn't really maybe do the connection of like, no, they were yeah. card-carrying Nazis. So when you have um, Strangelove doing that brilliant thing with his out-of-control arm, he can't doing this, this, this loot, uh, which apparently was not in the script. Apparently, from what I, the Criterion DVD said, that Sellers just found a black glove and was like, "I'm going to do that this." Was Kubrick's glove. That was Kubrick's, Kubrick's glove, glove that he used Fantastic. to handle the the, the super hot lights on set. <laughs> and I mean, because Peter Sellers, um, you know, the crazy thing about his performance in all three roles is that he was just like, "Yeah, listen, I can only do this shit one once or twice. I'm not going to do the same thing over and over again. It'll be different every time. So, like, you know, take that into account." So Kubrick had to like have six cameras on him at all times just to be like, okay, let's see what he's got now. So, like, all that Sig Heil shit, like, he just can't stop doing it, was just like, oh, I'm going to do this now. Mm-hmm. Where was Lud- Where was Ludwig von Drake from? Is he from Austria? Ludwig von Drake, I don't, I don't know. You're getting me nervous now. Yeah. Because you mentioned, you mentioned, you mentioned Disney Plus, and, and, and it is like, Ludwig doesn't show up until, until the 1950s, because he was a Disney TV character, but he's, you know, I don't want to besmirch him. I don't. I don't know his background. Son of a bitch. He's from Austria. Yeah. He's from Vienna, Austria. Yeah. But if you watch the new Ducktales, they say he worked for the British government. So you know. I also I also want to talk a little bit about um, Keenan Wynn, uh, because yes, I he's an actor that even though I've seen him in this, he he's an actor that kind of like Rod Steiger, I would see him in things and not recognize him. I would not recognize him in one thing to the other. And I would be like, who's that guy? And I would look him up and I'd realize, oh, that's Edwin's son. Um, Edwin, who was the character actor, was the voice of the Mad Hatter in Alice in Wonderland and was in, you know, many, many things and was always, Edwin was always the, you couldn't, you couldn't mistake him for anybody else. Like he would show up and he had that, that crazy voice and, and you'd instantly know it was him. And I find he, in fact, was in a movie this same year. What was the movie he was in that year? Fellow Best Picture nominee Mary Poppins. That's right. That's right. He loves to laugh. Um, yes. And it's interesting to me that, like, there are I, – I would see – in the past few years, I would see Keenan winning things, and I'd be like, who's that guy? And I would always – I would never recognize him as the guy from Strangelove. Uh I would see him in, in whether it was like Twilight Zone episodes or um, uh, the Shaggy DA. He's like the villain in the Shaggy DA, um, also on Disney Plus. Uh, I haven't seen the Goonies in a long time, but I'm kind of shocked to realize in 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 recent times that he was uncredited, played the role of Chester Copperpot in the Goonies, and. The he's so like he's one of those like journeyman character actors 
who is in a million different things. And I feel like I never, because uh, he's in Nashville as well. I saw Nashville not too long ago, and I hadn't realized that that was who it was. I think the thing with Keenan Wynn, too, is he's, you know, we talked about Kubrick getting these over-the-top performances out of everybody, mm-hmm. right? And getting Scott to go so extreme, and obviously having Slim Pickens be extreme, and, and all that. Keenan Wynn, as, as, uh, as Colonel Bat Guano, uh, is the only performance in this film that he lets be dry and subtle, you know, that there's, that he, he's not having him go big at all. In fact, quite the opposite, which is what makes it work so well, yeah. is he's just, what are you, one of these preverts? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to answer to the Coca Cola company. He's, he reminds me of, um, like the character he reminds me of most. Is not some big comedic character. He reminds me of the. Uh, do you remember the landlord in The Graduate mm-hmm. when when yeah. Ben Braddock goes and he just like every time shows up at the apartment going, "I want you out of here." Like it's just that one. He has him hitting this particular note that is on a very different wavelength than every other character in the film, and that's kind of what makes it land. Yeah, you know. Yeah, boy, he's so good. Um... Yeah, Backbone was was great. Yeah, he, uh, just I mean, you know, it's 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 just the dueling you know, humor types of him being just so, like, deadpan, this so gruff, like, low-key American guy who's kind of dumb saying shit like prevert and, like, oh, you're going to have to pay the Coca-Cola company up against this this stammering, proper British twit who's just desperately, like, trying to make a phone call with, oh, oh, damn it, I don't, I still, I'm still short. Well, there's also, I love the fact that you know, and of course, it, I'm sure it's intentional. I mean, you know, obviously, this this film has a lot of sexual humor in it. And, you know, Kubrick intended that. Um, you know, even though a lot of people maybe didn't pick up on it at the time, but that everybody else in this movie has the weird, you know, that is guided by, as Tom put it, you know, their dicks don't work. You know, whether it's George C. Scott or or Merkin Muffley or any of them, they're all guided by sex. And as Kubrick put it in some quote I have here, you know, a wargasm. But the only one who isn't motivated by that at all is Sellers' is, uh, colonel. Mm. Um, and that is the one who, when, as, as kind of when, when Keenan Wynn shows up, he's accusing him of being a prevert. Like, yeah. that there's this, that all the people up top are just motivated by uh, wanting to get their rocks off. But the only one they're suspicious of is the one guy who actually does not have some weird sexual hang-up. Yeah. Well, you know, it's like in that masterfully delivered rant at the end, you know, as George C. Scott says, we can't have a mineshaft gap. <laughs> yeah. That he, got, that he even, like, managed to handle that, like, that rant he goes on at the end talking about all that shit, and, you know, and we can't have a mineshaft gap. Just the way he, deli- just that he was able to handle that shit was, yeah, George C. Scott rules. I mean, he was kind of a shithead <laughs> in real life, but he, like, watching him in movies, like, he just rules. Yeah, he's great. One of the things that I keep when I think about this movie is that the plotting of the various things that go wrong from the way that the the various ways that like the plane takes on damage and that means that they can't get a message or they get the message. But, you know, the the various ways that the communication gets thwarted are all so methodical. Like when when the plane is now probably flying under the radar and George C. Scott is talking about how how oh they're probably doing this and then he realizes what that means for them um that oh this that one they call back all the pilots but there's the one pilot it's that hasn't turned back 
it's all done so um, it's also carefully plotted out, and yet the final the final act of the movie you have this active thing that's happening with Slim Pickens and the plane and the payload, but the final war room act of the movie is it's almost like the 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 part of the reason why the final explosion is so surprising is because you've for the past few minutes you've been watching it's kind of a hang it's kind of it's turned into like a hang in the war room as they speculate on well we could do this and we could we'd have to get lots of you know lots of women in the down in the mine and we'd you know and you just realize that it's all it's all for nothing that whole final conversation is a waste of everyone's time is in that room they're they have minutes they have seconds left to live (laughs) and they're talking as if they have months to plan you know and it's interesting you mention uh women because there is one little fact that i i picked up on this time especially which is there's only one woman in the entire movie Mm -hmm. and i don't just mean like one woman acting but the same woman tracy reed who is george c scott's secretary is also the cover model of the playboy magazine that Slim Pickens is reading. Yeah. And it's it's just one of those little details. He could have just gone with a regular cover, but it's one of those little details that just makes you realize, like, this is the the thing they're all fighting over. Like, this is what it all ultimately boils down to. Um, another little joke I just want to shout out that I, I loved because um, when I first saw this uh, in middle school, they make you take a bunch of different languages. Mm-hmm. I happened to have taken a quarter of a year of German uh, before I watch this, and when they do the joke, Strange Love doesn't sound like a kraut name. Well, he changed it at Ellis Island. It used to be Merck Work Digliebe. And I, I I felt so proud of myself as a little kid. I'm like, I get that joke! Because mm-hmm. Merck Work Digliebe is obviously just Strange Love in German. But it's it, there's so many of these little things that I just... It, it's weirdly, you know, it's not a movie like... I mean, Airplane is a movie that it throws all the gags at the wall, so you pick up on new things each time just because it's doing a lot. Mm-hmm. This is certainly not a throw-gags-at-the-wall kind of movie, but it is something where every time you watch it, there is some new thing that... Something in this very intricately plotted movie that I think you, you find again and, and, and click with. Yeah. And there are there are those big... Those big moments, like, gentlemen, you can't fight in here, this is the war room, or they'll see the big board, or, you know, there are these big moments that are... You know, if you're just tallying those, there aren't a lot of them, you know, it's because there's whole sections where what's funny about it is the horror of it. You know, what's funny about it is watching, you know, there's the point where the the troops come to, you know, liberate the army base to try to stop Sterling Hayden. And you realize that what you're watching is like a platoon of American soldiers being fired on by American soldiers. (laughs) You're seeing like. But even before everybody dies, a lot of people die in this movie, and it's it's really disturbing. It's really kind of like what you're seeing when the when the troops come to try to save the day. You don't really you see you see this kind of handheld chaos, and you realize like, oh, this is gruesome. Like in the middle of this comedy, really horrible things are happening. You know, I I, I love the I love the way it shifts from the you know steadily composed shots in the war room or with mandrake and then when the soldiers are shooting at the other soldiers trying to storm the base is how gritty and it makes it feel like it almost feels like it's stolen footage like it almost feels like they repurposed footage from like a war right like in one of those shots there's the big sign that says peace is our business which isn't yeah 
a joke be made. Like that is the slogan. Yeah, peace, peace is our profession. Peace is our profession. Yeah, peace is our profession. That's like their, that's the actual slogan of that branch of the military, which is just, it's like, again, he's just, he's just calling a shot, man. Just going to the plate, like, like Babe Ruth and just saying, I'm going to, I'm pointing at this thing and I'm just going to hit it. Like, um, uh, like I'm, like I'm look. I did some research in that the government dismissed this scenario of accidental nuclear war as, uh, it, 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 it wouldn't happen. It's too far fetched. But they showed the movie, this scene where Mandrake is trying to call the Pentagon on the payphone and he doesn't have enough change. They showed it, that scene at a session of Congress and they actually started talking like, well, what do we do if there is actually a nuclear crisis? How do we get information out if like we need to worry about how much goddamn change we have? So, uh, this did affect change in the government of just like, well, Let's make it easier to get information across and, uh, let's make it not so easy for some fluids obsessed idiot to start a nuclear war. I mean, that's kind of the thing is that the, the whole vibe of this film, and I think if there's, if there is a, if you had to boil this movie down to a single simple thought, it's that Kubrick looks at the phrase mutually assured destruction and focuses on the word assured, that they have created such a system that it's no longer a deterrent, it's now just a guarantee that only one domino needs to be knocked into and the whole thing starts falling piece after piece and it's impossible to stop at that point. And I love that they they go, you know, strange, strange looks like to the Russian ambassador, why would they make such a thing like this doomsday device? Uh, it, we didn't even know it existed, We, you know. And he just goes, uh, we were going to unveil it on Monday at a press uh, press event. And you just go, oh fucking! Like, no, it was it was a it was a it was a Soviet it was the the Soviet Council meeting, which was, yeah. you know. But basically, it's going to be a big PR move, and you just you just look at that and today, and you go, Jesus Christ, they fucking they got it. He got it cold. This is what government has become. It's like a show, and that an accident that happens before the big PR event ha- happen would just be the cause of our demise. It's. Well, I think also with that, it's less a PR of, I mean, it's partly a PR event, but it's also the idea that the Soviet Union had these council meetings that would happen every, I don't know, at, at certain intervals of time. And you could not, all of these disparate sort of countries within the Union had to go there to present like the argument for what they were doing. And you weren't allowed to make decisions without the council approval to some degree. And, and, uh, because there's all kinds of issues, especially going through the sixties where, people are you know that there's fighting within the soviet union because countries are putting country over party and all of that so it's also it's not a movie that is like oh america's completely stupid and russia's got it together it's satirizing kind of both governments and the idea of neither of them actually has a functioning system that could prevent this well, you know even, even even the idea of you know george c scott is paranoid about the russian ambassador the entire time that he's spying and in the final moments, you see that he's right. The, he is spying. And even at the point where ultimately it makes no difference because it's seconds before the end of the world <laughs> that uh, you confirm it. You see like, oh, he's taking little pictures. I love the scene where George C. Scott tries to plant the, the fucking camera on him. It's it, Again, George C. Scott's physicality is just so funny. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's part of the reason why he wrote the pie fight scene is he wanted it to end with this big moment of all the branches of the military and the government not 
connecting and mm. they're just holding things back so each one can seem better than the other because oh we had this information and we acted on it so we're better and how it just devolves into a childish pie fight and that's and he goes yeah that's what i wanted it to be but when we filmed it 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 just didn't work so you know another i mean another again this is the dramatic um version in some ways but like the the hbo miniseries chernobyl yeah you know it has a lot of things in common with this in terms of um it's not played it's certainly not played for laughs but the idea that you have a uh nuclear meltdown and the people in power don't want to tell anybody anything because they're too proud and and then you have these things that if they weren't so horrifying they would be funny like the people who are out on the bridge looking at what they think is this kind of beautiful dust and they don't realize, no, this is the, this is the thing that's going to melt your internal organs in a few days. You know, uh, you're, you're standing there in the nuclear fallout and it, you know, it looks, it actually reminds me of, there was a, there was a big flood in my hometown in like 1992. Uh, and I, I think I just graduated high school and the night before the big flood happened, there was just, it was just a big rainstorm. And part of the road, uh, down near, uh, my house where I'm at right now, the water was like coming up pretty high. And we had no idea that the t- whole town was about to flood and there's going to be, you know, all this damage to all these people's houses. And me and my best friend, we were out in the rain that night. And we were like, this is so much fun. And we were like laughing and, and thinking, like, this is great. What a, what a cool storm this is. And then the next day, uh, we're like, oh, the whole town is flooded. Like, like there are people have lost their cars, their basements have been ruined. It was this terrible thing. And I sat back, and I was like, oh god, this is. Uh, we were having such a fun time, and and I think there is something in the the the. I mean, that relates more to Chernobyl and to Strangelove, but there is something about the comedy of human beings who have no idea that something big and bad is either happening or about to happen. And your final moments are spent planning this, you know, sex bunker that's going to happen or, or you're taking secret photographs that are about to be destroyed when everyone around you dies. You know, you're, you're still spying up until the last few seconds because you have no idea that it's already over. There's so much, you know, to the opposite side of that. I mean, we're now living through a, plague you know where where people are are dying across this country in in shocking and upsetting numbers and you look at it and it, it would from an outside perspective the idea of how dysfunctional the white house is the idea of how terrible everything you know how how the layers of idiocy that go into this injecting clorox in your veins that type of shit would if I was an outside observer or in 50 years when all of our descendants are, are you know, in their history classes, it's going to seem funny. Right. And how insane the stuff that was going on at the top is. It's not funny right now to no. us because we are amongst the people who are, you know, Do- Dr. Strangelove isn't funny if it's from the perspective of the soldiers getting shot at at the base. Right. It's also an interesting thing, which is. This year there was, you know, they they came out with a bunch of new Looney Tunes cartoons, and there was a there was a big uh, brouhaha about um, how they basically announced that Elmer Fudd wasn't going to use a shotgun anymore. He wasn't going to use a gun, mm-hmm. um, 
And a lot of, uh, I mean, particularly a lot of, I think, right-wing people started getting angry about that and pointing out they were like, well, they said he still can try to kill Bugs Bunny with an axe or with a scythe. I mean, objectively, that's worse. Like, if he actually were to yeah. actually kill Bugs Bunny, I'd much rather be shot than torn apart by a scythe um, if I was Bugs Bunny. But part of, I started thinking about that, and I thought, well, the thing that makes sense to me about that is when Bugs Bunny cartoons were being made in the 1940s or 50s and there was all this gun humor in it, most school children were not afraid of getting shot at school. That wasn't a prevalent fear. And there aren't any cartoons for kids in that era about nuclear, the nuclear fear, because that was something that kids were actually afraid of. And so I was like, oh, it makes sense that like you want to take guns out of things that are for kids now because kids are actually rationally, reasonably afraid of mass shootings and school shootings. And that is a thing that makes this Dr. Strangelove as a comedy. It's such an adult comedy. Even for a lot of a, a lot of adults, this would be too much to handle because it is about, I mean, people have lost the dread of nuclear nuclear war, even though it's you know, every bit as possible now as it was then. But back then it was front of mind. It almost makes me think that if you were going to make a modern Dr. Strangelove now, it wouldn't necessarily be about um, nuclear war or even terrorism. I think it would be about climate change. I think he would, the, the, the modern version of this movie would be something about um, the horrors to come of like environmental collapse you know? But even then, I think what what makes Strange Love in this time period and the you know it, it, it's the Cold War element. It's the idea of you know it's you know with something like climate change or or COVID or anything like else like that. It is that the government is is just negligent and is just failing to act. Whereas the the unique fear of the Cold War is it was such that that you were simultaneously afraid that people on the other side of, of the world were going to go crazy and, and blow up America mm-hmm. or that our own leaders were going to get so gung ho about one upping right. the other side pride that they would go too far. Yeah. That there's this, you know, that, that, that the, the unique thing about the cold war, which America being, you know, for a time, you know, the sole world superpower meant you couldn't really do that was there was this element of, oh, there was an equally deadly threat, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, there's, you know, which which we we try. I mean, you even look at, like, more serious films. You look at, you know, James Bond and for how long they couldn't figure out what to do with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you know, the Cold War, and eventually, like, they went, eh, Goldeneye, eh, the Soviets, they're back-ish? Eh, sure, we'll go with that. Yeah. You know, they don't really, we don't really know. So there's that unique anxiety of now we don't really know what to we we have concepts to be afraid of like you mentioned mass shootings disease and all that climate change but there you know there was a specific idea of oh we need to be afraid of this person but our own fear of these people might also cause us to die yeah i mean back back in 2015 and 2016 I uh, my friend Anthony Tamanick uh, I directed his show at UCB which he would do these 
shows called Trump Dump that were, it was basically set at Trump's first press conference after being elected president. And we started these in, I think, September of 2015, and that was the premise. And he went on, obviously, to have like a show on Comedy Central for a little while called The President Show. But in some ways, the the purest form of that show was before it had happened because it was us like saying as a warning, like, look out because, I mean, a lot of the things that Atamanik was making jokes about then are things that then came true. And he's scarily um, good at predicting um, what the, the pathology of Donald Trump will lead to. Um, but... I think part of the reason that, uh, I mean, there are a lot of different reasons, but part of the reason why the the show on Comedy Central didn't end up lasting as long as the real thing is because um, the more the real Donald Trump is out front and center, the harder it is to uh, convince people to um, spend time with the satirical version of it uh, because it is like, oh, when things are too horrible, it's very hard to find that spot that you actually... Uh, can enjoy um, seeing the uh, seeing the funhouse mirror version of that. Um, it gets too too bleak and too depressing. Yeah, I, I mean, I will say, as somebody who was a fan of that show, I tr- genuinely believe the President Show was one of the only good pieces of oh, political satire we've had in the last couple of years. Um, because it's so hard to, I think it's so hard to do now too. Because I don't know, like it's. I mean, I, I think about I, – I find nothing in this world more exhausting than the Sunday morning tweets after a Saturday Night Live episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's – and to me, that's not me dumping on Saturday Night Live. I, I think that even if I think Saturday Night Live – if I watch an episode and go, this show's tired, it's not more tired than the people who go, it should have been canceled already. Yeah. But I, I think that the trouble you run into is, you know, what do I even – what do you even do with this? What do you uh, – you know – when they were like, oh, Jim Carrey's coming on and he's being Biden. It's like, well, what's the, what is the joke going to be? We're all too scared to, it's, to laugh at this. It's hard, you know? it's, it's hard to do because, you know, especially when there's, I think, a, a tendency to want to try to be balanced and to, to make, uh, I think sometimes there's the, you know, when, when, when a Taminate was going after Trump, he knew what he was targeting and he was confident about it. He knew he knew what he was saying, and I think it can be harder for a show that is a um, that has all eyes on it and is also part of a big company and it has a lot of different voices in the mix. Uh, and you're having to res- you know do rapid response to uh, the whole political spectrum. I think it's sometimes hard to to know what the take is. Like when this this last week, you know, uh, with the fly cold open with Jim Carrey as as Biden. There's just so much that's happening in that cold open because they're having to they're having to do it within days and they're having to try to address all aspects of it. And that's just a really hard thing to do. Like it ends up in in that instance, I think it ended up being like, wow, there's like 15 different things going on in this. And you got to be bold if you want to make satirical points against not just the man, but the, the man that's constantly not putting your best interests at heart i mean this movie is ballsy it's bold it's got a vision it's got a point and the problem with you know snl every week is they don't have a point they don't have they're not bold they're just trotting out 
celebrities, not even their cast anymore, and just saying, well, there was a fly on Mike Pence's head. Remember that movie, The Fly? I don't, I don't necessarily go that far, Tom, because to me, I think it's more an element of now, especially. Because here's the thing. You think about you know, 2016, everybody was, when before he got elected. Everybody was was doing something and had some kind of had some kind of take, and now we kind of have this feeling. I at least I do, where it's like where somebody you know this. If somebody has this urge to be balanced, you kind of just want to immediately go. You're not helping things. Right. Don't do this now. Right. You're make you're gonna make. We have to deal with something now. We don't have the time. And and so much of you know uh, the political humor that we're used to today is is both sides is that very south park do i vote for a douche or a turd like that kind of thing and i think that that created a subsection of people who are now so jaded that the rest of us are desperately trying to go no no please don't do that just 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 let's try and make things a little better please don't you know go so far down that rabbit hole i mean when you were talking about um uh uh anthony's show uh present show and when he paired up i think very smartly um, whether it was his decision or not, I don't know, but the fact that his Trump did not go up against really a Hillary Clinton so much as he paired up with James Adomian doing, um, mm-hmm. doing Bernie Sanders, which was, which was its own, especially after he didn't get the nomination, became something that was, was also easy to satirize and speak to a very particular mm-hmm. subsection of the, of the country. And I think that that's, you know, this film can, you know, Dr. Strange of, was going after essentially just the the deranged warmongers of the United States. Right. But it was done from a place where we had no, where it was basically going, we don't really have the power to stop this. Yeah. I mean, it was, it, a, you in, know. in some ways, the, the point that Dr. Strangelove is making, uh, again, that the pivot from drama to comedy is so slight in this movie that all they really have to do is tell a version of the, you know, they don't have to overcomplicate it. They don't have to work extra hard to make it funny. It's pretty simple. Uh, A guy loses his mind and the system as it's set up has uh, not enough safeguards to prevent uh, him from ordering this nuclear, like enough things go wrong that there's nothing anybody could have done about this. And, the it, it's a very you know it's a very dark take it's also a very you know as i said before we don't care at the end of this movie about the death of any of these characters it's yeah does anyone care that jackie ripper shoots himself in the head in the middle of the movie <laughs> it's no nope. we 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 barely even clock it at that point because he's already responsible for so many deaths at that point that you know this is not this is not a film that has there's there's no aspect of um uplift to this movie there's no it's not a goal it's not a you know the fact that i think it's very key that the the last five minutes of the movie is these shithead guys sitting around planning on how each of them is going to be able to have sex with multiple women and you just think like, oh, go ahead, you know, just like <laughs> you're at that point, you're not even rooting for anyone to survive, you know. Well, it's and that's the same thing with, um, you know, you mentioned Death of Stalin earlier. Mm-hmm. I I rewatched that recently because my um, 
my partner was was born in Russia, and we were looking for stuff to watch over quarantine. So uh, on that remote, like Netflix watches a group. So Tom and I were like, oh, we have to show her this because especially for her, she'll think it's doubly funny, mm-hmm. right? Like if we're bowled over, she'll think it's hilarious. Uh, didn't quite pan out like that. In fact, her response to me was, if I showed this to my grandparents, they would burn it. I, I The weird thing about that movie is I actually, as much as I love it, I don't um, – my first thought when I saw it – I've only seen it the one time, but when I saw it was – um, it's less funny than um, anything else that I've seen by Iannucci. And my take on it was that he had sort of done the math. There's like a, there's sort of a trade-off that you do, which is like, well, we could make, there are certain things that once you introduce them, you automatically, it's almost like the amount of comedic points you can score, the ceiling gets lower for how, how funny the movie can be. And like Dr. Strangelove could never be as uh, funny as Airplane in terms of the number of times you'd laugh at a joke. And part of the reason for that is because the darkness of the subject matter kind of means that automatically you've lost maybe 20 points in terms of pure like laughs. You've lo- you, you go in with like, well, it's going to end with nuclear holocaust and the, all of these things are going to happen. That means, well automatically you're never going to have that pure joy of of a movie that's just a laugh a minute. And I think with the death of Stalin, the second they acknowledge that there are these gulags where these rapes are happening, the movie automatically by design can only be funny up to a certain level because there are certain a- certain aspects of reality that are so grim and so dark that you knowingly enter into this knowing like, well, I can only be this funny. Even if every other part of the movie is funny, this thing casts such a long shadow over the rest of the movie that uh, I actually thought like more history should be taught via this kind of demonstration of it because I think I think Death of Stalin is such a great history film because it's not dry, dusty history. It's actually showing like hey, you know how, like, your boss is an asshole and they don't know shit, you know, and you have to... And you think, like, now imagine that happening at the level of a government. Imagine that, like, the guy who's, like, oh, your neighbor or your boss or someone that you think is a complete moron, now imagine them in the most serious of governmental posts of power. And it's terrifying, but it also, like, I feel like not enough of history is sort of like taught to us in that way that it's like, oh, well, you know, part of the reason that this happened was because this guy felt this way, or that, you know, like that it really is down to, uh, you know, all these like uh, horrible men each trying to be in charge for selfish reasons, you know? Does anybody else have anything they want to add before I wrap us up with Oscar talk? Or? Uh, yes. Do you guys know Kubrick wanted to make a sequel? No. I no, I did that. not know that. Okay, so in 95, Kubrick enlisted Terry Southern to write a sequel. He wanted it to be called Son of Strangelove. He wanted it to be about Strangelove and the little society he had started in the bunkers underneath the earth. And it would focus on his son. There's not a lot of details really about it. I mean, this was 95, so he'd be dead in 99. But he didn't want to direct it. 
he wanted Terry Gilliam to direct it. Okay. And Gilliam apparently didn't know anything about it, but he said, uh, if I knew about it, I would have loved to have done it. But uh, I guess in the four years between enlisting the script and Kubrick dying, Terry Southern must have just said, well, I guess this will go to the grave with Stanley because, well, what's the point? But um, yeah, he he wanted a sequel to be made. I guess I wonder what he saw in 95 that was like, I think there's some satirical stuff here we can start working with again. Well, that's also like one of those things. That's like when you find out that he originally wanted Steve Martin for the lead of Eyes Wide Shut. Mm-hmm. Like, which, you know, which is a fact that that's one of those things that as soon as I heard it, it changed how I watched that movie. But it's one of those things where you just kind of wonder, like, what is going on? What was going on in his head? Well, you know, that? one of the reasons why Steve Martin perhaps didn't get that part is because uh, I had read that Kubrick was obsessed with the movie Modern Romance uh, by Albert Brooks. <laughs> yeah. And he they struck up like a phone correspondence and they were became friends and he said at one point uh Kubrick called up Albert Brooks and said what do you think about Steve Martin for the lead in my next movie and Albert Brooks was like are you crazy you could get anybody and he kind of like basically uh talked him out of the idea of Steve Martin being being the lead of one of his movies um and but you can also see that when he was thinking about Eyes Wide Shut, when he saw Modern Romance, Steve uh, Stanley Kubrick was like, I've been trying to make a movie like this for years. How did you do it? And it basically was like, I've been trying to make a movie about how jealousy drives you crazy. And that does, I mean, the, I've only seen Eyes Wide Shut twice. And the first time I saw it, I liked it. And the second time I saw it more recently, I didn't like anything about it. <laughs> uh, I I genuinely was horrified at, at how much my opinion on it had changed in less than two decades. Um, I I you know I'm someone who when I hear like I'm never someone who thinks you know when 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 people say oh don't make any more Indiana Jones movies uh, don't ruin it or whatever I, I I'm always the type I'm like ah, I'd rather people try and if it's not. If you, if you don't like it, it doesn't turn out good. It doesn't ruin, doesn't take anything away from what's great about the original. So, but I have to admit that when I hear the son of strange love being like a nine, a late 1990s produced by Stanley Kubrick, but not directed by him about a thing that in my viewing, they did not have time to, it, it, it screws with my idea of the chronology of the end of strange love, because I always imagine that the, the, doomsday device kicks in very quickly and the last moment we're seeing is the uh, mind fear i can walk um but i'm not unhappy that they didn't <laughs> that they didn't <laughs> make son of strange love in 1998 <laughs> with terry gilliam directing i i don't it's all- i don't think it would have added to my love of the original for there to be because when even when you say the title the first thing that pops in my head is the son of the pink panther um <laughs> Which is like, you know, not something that, I mean, actually now, now that I say that, <laughs> Son of Strange Love with Roberto Benigni uh, as, <laughs> as <laughs> once again, <laughs> there is a party that thinks like, oh, we're on our way to a trilogy here. Uh, if you can, <laughs> if you can get Roberto Benigni to play the son of, uh, you know, yet another, um, uh, make a third uh, Peter Sellers. Son of, son of what? Son of being there. <laughs> son of being there. Uh, son of the party. Um, the, um, yeah, I mean, 
that is fascinating to learn. I also, when I think of movies that I didn't make it all the way through, but have you ever seen the movie Canadian Bacon? Yes. It was Michael Moore's um, attempt at making a a narrative comedy, and it has a great cast. Um, Sounds wonderful. John Candy, right? John John Candy's in the lead. John Candy, is Alan Alda in it? Am I remembering correctly? Uh, Uh, Yes, Alan Alda, John Candy, Bill Nunn, Kevin Pollack, Rhea Perlman. Um, And at the time, and it's basically about how the United States, like, um, like, gins up a fake war against Canada. Um, And I remember renting it, and me and a group of people, we had a similar, we had the same experience that I'd had with Strange Love, but in this case, I didn't, you know, we, we turned off the movie a few minutes into it, which is not something I do very often. But I was so looking forward to it based on the cast and based on the uh, the concept of it, and then I just I couldn't I couldn't make it through it. I did not like it. It's a weird relic from that time in the '90s where all these indie brats were popping up, and the studios were like, "I don't know, what do we do with these guys?" Yeah, no one had a clue. Yeah, I just remember it being a waste of a lot of really talented, funny people in a in a film where it was someone who had, you know, shown a lot of skill making documentaries that were comedic but um i did not i did not it's a thumbs down for me on canadian bacon i'm not afraid, I, i'm not afraid to say it. i'm trying to think of like it definitely was a movie that wanted to be in the in the tradition of the uh dr strange love mold of like we're gonna we're gonna um really stick it to um you know the the military industrial complex it's it's tough like i i truly don't know if you can do that post cold war because it just becomes like i don't know even some of the best satire you know american political satire and i i I still enjoy watching something like say a team america understanding the context of its time Mm -hmm. but there's still jokes in that where you're like i don't think that's helping guys and they've dealt with that you know trey parker messon have in the recent seasons of their show kind of dealt with Man, some of the things we did right. were not necessarily helping, and I feel like that's kind of the the beautiful thing about Strange Love is that, and you know, almost any other kind of satire of American government, because it's we believe anyway in the idea of a democracy, and we believe that we can we can push for change. You you kind of feel like you know the, there's elements that aren't helping the cause, and, and with Doctor Strange Love, it's the entirety of it is so out of our hands as a people and as an American public that it's just telling us, like, listen, there's truly nothing any of us can do. Mm. If these maniacs want to push the button, they will push the button, and we're all dead. There's absolutely nothing we can do about it. I think if that's one of the tests, like, is it helping? I don't think Strange Love is hurting, but it's also not helping, and I don't think that's a goal of it. I think it's, it's maybe helping in the broad sense of, like, you should be aware that this thing is bigger than it should be. Well, I think it's, I think it's, there's no way it can help because its vantage point, particularly about the Cold War, is this idea of we have gone too far to fix this. That with this system of mutually assured destruction, it is impossible for someone to even make the telephone call to turn this back. You know, it's, he's not showing us you know, uh, a, a fracture in, in you know, that he's not showing us a fracture in the foundation before we've built the house. He is showing us that we have a domino rally and there's all we have to, all we can do is hope that nobody knocks into one. Like that's all there is to I it. Think, I think also, 
there is something about, you know, it's not a big film in scope in terms of like, when you think about what was filmed, uh, the war room's a big impressive set, but it's not like, uh, there's no car chases that the, the, the stuff that really is big is actually just really excellent model airplane over like the, that I always think those shots of the plane look so beautiful, even though they're clearly effects shots, but they look, there's a shot like that in Lolita of an airplane. And I'm like, man, he was good at that. Like he made this look good, but for the most part, it's people in rooms. It's like a bunch of men in this room, a bunch of men in this room, uh, people in a, an airplane set, etc. The, it doesn't venture out from those handful of locations, you know, like, but it does in a way because it exists in these little, you know, rooms here and there and a cockpit here and there, there is something that's alien about it. We never see people just going about their business. The closest we get to that is maybe Turgidson in his room with his secretary. You see a bedroom, but that's kind of the closest we get to like the outside world, right? Yeah. And part of that is that beautiful, the beautiful black and white cinematography of this that makes it all feel even more abstract. Yeah, it's it. We don't we 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 think of the world of Strange Love as its own reality. It's not recognizable as our life, you know, or our world. Now, I do want to wrap us up by talking about. Uh, I always end these episodes talking about the Oscars, the sense of how things were received at the time. Doctor Strange Love was nominated for Best Picture, which is great. truly insane to think about. So great! It's, I'm so impressed. I was nominated for Best Picture alongside uh, Beckett, Mary Poppins, Zorba the Greek, and the eventual winner, My Fair Lady. I've never seen My Fair Lady. I've never seen Zorba the Greek. I've never seen Beckett. I've seen Mary Poppins. I love it. I've seen Dr. Strangelove. I love it. This is a double bill I would attend. <laughs> if somebody said, Let, let's go see Dr. Strangelove and Mary Poppins, I would say, what time? <laughs> I would, that's, that's a double bill that could almost get me into a COVID theater, which that, that, which is something <laughs> I plan on avoiding until, until things are better. But boy, that would be a temptation. It's it's also funny. Please, the next time, if you ever do, the next time you watch Saving Mr. Banks, please think about the fact that miles away, while that film is taking place, Stanley Kubrick is filming Peter Sellers uh, sig heiling and choking himself with his own hand. Oh, it's so good. And and I think and I think that Doctor Strangelove is practically perfect in every way. <laughs> The other nominations it got, it was nominated for Best Director, but also lost that to My Fair Lady. Uh, it was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay, but lost to Beckett. But it was also, this is the one that gets me the maddest. And, uh, you know, Tom and I both like to yell at the Oscars, and I'm sure we will here. Nominated for Best Actor for Peter Sellers. Lost to Rex Harrison in My Fair Lady. Eat shit, Academy. <laughs> and, and remember that you've got even if, like, truly, it's 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 the thing where it's not only that I I think Sellers is the best performance out of the nominees uh, that year. I mean, it's exceptional, especially doing the three roles. Even if you weren't going to give it to Sellers, you've got Anthony Quinn is incredible in Zorba the Greek, and then the other nominees are both Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole in Beckett. Yeah, all of whom are giving great some of their career best performances and they give it to rex harrison speaking through songs i think this is a john wayne style vote splitter scenario i think sometimes when you get a number of excellent performances 
up against uh, a less good one. The the people with taste split their votes among multiple nominees, and it ends up going to someone who is no one's, not as many people's first choice or second choice or third I mean, choice. Honestly, good for the movie for getting all the nominations it did. I mean, it won yeah. nothing. I mean, I, this is a hundred percent the kind of movie that enough people got so it got all these nominations but to get the win was absolutely just a a fucking pipe dream like it just getting there and getting like oh it's a best picture nominee and you know these this movie's not gonna get the fucking snobs that are like no 80 years old watching rex harrison do my fair lady going oh yes that's acting the feat the feat of this movie getting those nominations like it, it really would be like uh, I mean, I think of movies that I don't that I love, but that would be impossible to imagine getting Best Picture nominations. But this would be like Kids in the Hall, Brain Candy, or or <laughs> The Big Lebowski, or you know, like it'd be like those movies getting Best Picture nominations is like you can't imagine it. Even though um, I think those movies are both perfect in their own weird way. It's the idea that Doctor Strangelove actually got that many Oscar nominations is very impressive. Um, and, a sp- and and you look at the fact that it's both Strangelove and Mary Poppins are both movies that are products of one guy with an absolute feverish mania mm-hmm. uh, creating this thing that that all every other thing, every other element of the universe wanted to not happen. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, honestly, when you think about. Kubrick was not yet Kubrick in the sense of like this is still just the beginning of this is before so many of the things that we na- that made Kubrick into the the you know legend that he is regarded as now this is still very early days so it's n- it's not like this is not like if he had come out with this movie in the eighties and gotten a nomination for best picture and best director. This is, this is relatively, um, youthful work by him, you know, compared to all the big milestones that would happen later on. He also, people kind of forget, he doesn't get that many best picture nominations either. I think, I think strange love gets one clockwork orange gets one and Barry Lyndon gets one and that's it. Yeah. Wow, it shows 2001 didn't get a, a Best Picture nomination? No. No, I think, I, I don't believe so. I think that got, um... I bet, you could trick a, I bet you could trick a lot of people with that, because I think the assumption would be, if you didn't know, that 2001 definitely got a Best Picture nomination, Doctor Strangelove definitely didn't. Like, if you're just... It did... Yeah. It did not. He got... They, they did... The Academy did to Kubrick what they would do to Alfred Hitchcock a lot of the time, which is not give him a picture, but give him Best Director. So he was nominated for Best Director for 2001, but the Best Picture nominees that year were Funny Girl, The Lion in Winter, Rachel, Rachel, Romeo and Juliet, and the winner, Oliver. Wow. And Alfred Hitchcock would be a good character in Doctor Strangelove, just a guy <laughs> just painfully horny. We just did, so you know, kind of, we just did Vertigo earlier this week with some guests, so we managed to do both weirdly, uncomfortably psychosexual films in the National Film Registry's first year in the same week. Wow. So uh, I'm I'm excited to not have to deal with that Another, uh, Yeah, another interesting movie that pops into my head when thinking about Strangelove is uh, Spielberg's 1941, which is, it's strange to think now how 
relatively little time there is between Strange Love and 1941 because I'm sure at the time it probably felt like a lot longer. Uh, but now you look at it and it's just like a, what, like a decade and a half or not even that. Um, yeah, it would be like, it, it, imagine if if Doctor Strangelove came out in nineteen in two thousand four, and nineteen forty one was had just come out a couple of years ago, um, that's crazy, right? It, it's weird how the the time seems so long when you think of the difference between the sixties and late seventies. But Slim Pickens' um, presence in nineteen forty one, I think, I think is and you know it, it does link those movies in the sense of of. Spielberg definitely wanted, like, he was wanting to make this, like, big World War II uh, comedy that had this ambition that in in many ways was, I I think it was, like, it was part of that movement at the time where the comedies all felt like they were, like, boys destroying things was, like, the big, that Blues Brothers Animal House kind of thing of, like, we're going to destroy a bunch of police cars or uh, we're going to tear up a building. And the 1941 definitely had that feeling of, like, we're going to, like, drive a tank through a paint factory just to see what it looks like. But it's interesting to see... Um, that's another double bill that I... It would be fascinating to watch Dr. Strangelove and 1941 and see the perfection of Dr. Strangelove as a movie contrasted with this sort of messy failure that is also kind of fascinating in its ambition and in the way that Spielberg and Kubrick's careers uh, intersect in so many strange ways. It's it's more it's better than its reputation. It's not great, but there's just so much great shit in it in this big bloated package that you you just can't help but like sit back and go, "Man, this could have used some judicious editing in the script and the filming phase, but also goddamn Spielberg's just fucking good at this thing." I I bought it on Blu-ray recently. I haven't watched it because I sort of feel like the only other time I want to watch it, I want to see it in a theater with an audience. I do want to see it in the theater. I bought it in the Spielberg box set, but holy shit, on the big screen that must be mind-melting. I think it would just be really fun to see such a it may be the weirdest thing Spielberg's ever done in terms of how it just doesn't connect with the rest of his filmography, and yet it it does have this, you know, just the ambition of Putting Slim Pickens in that movie is like, oh, you're going to make us think of like one of the greatest perfect film comedies of all time, you know? Slim Pickens in a submarine with Christopher Lee and Toshiro Mifune. Yeah. I mean, like, it doesn't, it, the, the ambition itself is its own, like joke in that movie you know <laughs> like i mean robert zemeckis and bob gill co-screenwriting with john milius that's definitely a movie that's gonna be something you talk about after you see it oh. connor thank you so much for joining us i know it's been a super hectic time uh for you I, I well thank you for having me it's such a thrill to talk about it's such a treat to talk about this movie because you know i feel like it's a certainly like one of the most respected movies of all time and the people who love it love it but i still feel like this is not a movie that is for most people i feel like it is as much as it is as much as its reputation is pristine it is also a movie that i still think would repel most viewers oh yeah they'll bounce right off it yeah it's it takes its time it's slow it's quiet and it's it's you it but it, i feel like for those of us who love it it feels 
Like, it makes me feel good about myself that I love it so much. Like, it does give me a feeling of, like, I'm one of the people who gets this movie. Even though there's a lot of us. It's not like this is some obscure uh, thing. But I still feel like when you're watching it, you feel like it's talking to you, you know? Well, thank you. Connor, Th- thank you so much. Um, people, Dead Eyes Season 2 should be out now. Because uh, this is coming out a couple months from when we're recording it. Uh, and presumably, who knows what the future holds, Presumably, uh, you know, uh, George Lucas' talk show on uh, on Planet Scum Live mm-hmm. is still happening in, in, in the months ahead. I think if the pandemic uh, is still happening, we're still doing the show. <laughs> I think we'll, revi- <laughs> we'll revisit the long-term future of the show when things have uh, returned to something resembling normal life. Well, it's it's one of the few things that uh, that got me and a number of people through the early days of the of the pandemic. Well, that's good to hear. I'm so glad you came out for this, and you are welcome back anytime. We've got future seasons coming up with a whole bunch of... We've got fun stuff, we've got sad stuff, we've got weird stuff. Great. So Yeah, just let me know. know. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much. All right, thanks a lot. This was one of those movies that I needed to go back and rewatch because I it didn't really resonate with me the first time that I watched it. I had to watch it for uh, a college class, and uh, the reality was I just had so much else going on that uh, I didn't really appreciate it. I also don't think I was as politically aware of of things and of satire and you know the nuances that it was trying to do. I enjoyed it a lot more the second time through. It is definitely a movie that if people did not connect with the first time, um, I think I'd be curious to see how people connect with it now. In the midst of all of this, as opposed to maybe like a year or two ago, um, yeah, I really enjoyed it this this time around. Well, listen, if people have thoughts on it, they can always uh, tweet at us. And if they have long nuclear conspiracies, they can tweet directly at Kyle and not the rest of us. Kyle will hear your conspiracy theories. Uh, that's not a challenge. Please don't do that. What would you pick to add to the film registry? A reminder to you both and to our listeners that the film needs to be an American film and at least 10 years old. A lot of the times when we do this, um, you know, there's some sometimes we have to do a lot of elaborate explaining uh, for for what our choices are uh, and and how it connects. But Kubrick is one of the quintessential filmmakers, not just uh, American filmmakers or semi-modern filmmakers, but just one of the quintessential filmmakers. The man define, you know, helped define the medium and its possibilities. So I think that as much of his filmography as possible should be in the registry, should be preserved, especially a guy who his first film, Fear and Desire, he wanted no one to see. Uh, He wanted just gone. Uh, You know, so much of his stuff should be preserved. And when thinking about, okay, what's the next film to go in? I was struck by the fact that for some, I, I don't understand how it's not, other than the fact that maybe it's a very... British film, despite being a British-American co-production, but A Clockwork Orange is not in the National Film Registry. In fact, the Library of Congress has it on its list of some films that aren't yet in the registry. Uh, you know, when you're looking at Kubrick's filmography, and I love Paths of Glory and I love Spartacus, but that miracle run he has of Doctor Strange Love, 2001 Space Odyssey, Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, Shining, Full Metal Jacket, Eyes Wide Shut, just straight through all, you know, masterpieces. Um, and I was initially torn between uh, Barry Lyndon, picking Barry Lyndon, which is a film that I adore, um, or Clockwork Orange. But Clockwork Orange is just, it's still so much a part of our 
pop culture lexicon. Um, people, uh, people who haven't seen the movie and probably will never see the movie because of its brutality, uh, still know the look of Alex DeLarge. They still understand that very particular, very distinct dystopian future, you know, and, and to see someone like Stanley Kubrick go from 2001 Space Odyssey, which is, you know, a masterpiece of, of, uh, man's potential and how man could become a, a higher form of life. To then go straight to A Clockwork Orange, which is the most pessimistic view on humanity and the most hopeless view of the future. Um, it's an absolutely remarkable film uh, with some of the hallmarks of what we define as Stanley Kubrick's uh, visual language. Um, it's it, it's wild to me that it's not in the registry. So A Clockwork Orange would be my pick uh, to be preserved by the National Film Registry. My pick is no less obvious, but not in the picking a Kubrick movie, obvious. Um, I'm not even going to do a preamble. I'm picking Failsafe. Um, I think those two movies make a perfect double feature. They are the flip sides of the, flip sides of the same coin. Um, Sidney Lumet brings his equally impressive, yet no less distinct filmmaking style to Failsafe. He gets an amazing cast, uh, and he... Takes it more seriously. I said in the episode, there's still, there's a little dark humor running undercurrent of this movie, but it's taking the stakes of it seriously. Uh, Henry Fonda is unbelievable as the president, really bringing to home the weight of the decisions that are going to have to be made here. Um, Walter Matthau is amazing as in the straighter version of this same story, their version of Strange Love. And also the, their version of uh, the George C. Scott character as the warmonger who's trying to get them to preemptively strike so they could win the war because we need to win. That's the only way we could prevent war is preemptively. I think it's a pretty unbelievable movie. It, uh, As we mentioned, uh, there were efforts to make it not as successful as Strangelove, and it wasn't. It uh, was almost a bit of a underseen, underrepresented movie just in general for a long time. It was always hard to find. Uh, Criterion, luckily, thankfully, uh, released a gorgeous, amazing Blu-ray of Failsafe this year. I picked it up. It's amazing. Uh, similarly, similarly to how Mike feels about Kubrick, I think uh, Lumet needs to have a good amount of representation in the film registry because of his work. Uh, it did a lot to push cinema forwards if it wasn't for him maybe more than most his filmmaking style helped bring about the 70s i mean he was doing that shit in the 60s so when the 70s rolled around he pretty easily fit right in and his movies in that time serpico dog day afternoon network a bunch you know he made a bunch of shit in the 70s that just uh worked he had some good stuff in the 80s some decent stuff in the 90s he came back in a pretty big way in the 2000s before his death uh i think failsafe is i think if you're gonna have dr strangelove in i think you should have failsafe also to have the sibling uh of the same story that they both come from the same parents and uh, i think failsafe's awesome everyone should see it Thank you for listening, and thanks to Connor Ratliff for joining us. Be sure to check out his podcast, Dead Eyes, recently named one of the 10 best podcasts of 2020 by Time Magazine. New episodes come out on Thursdays, just like us, so why not make it a double feature? 
Also, be sure to check out his show, The George Lucas Talk Show, every Sunday on Planet Scum Live, and follow him on Twitter at Connor Ratliff. You can also follow our co-hosts on social media as well. You can find Mike at NKOAS and Tom at Raging Bull 1990. While you're there, be sure to follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at YMO Podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps a little show like ours. If you know some friends who might like the show, tell them about it. And if you have someone who you think would make a great guest for an upcoming film, tell us about it at yourmissingoutpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next time.